we're continuing in our Bible class on worship, and this is our final class on the Lord's Supper. And then next week, we're going to talk about the way that Christians have talked about the faith in the past in creeds and catechisms and the way those have showed up in corporate worship. And then we'll have one final lesson on, on worship, and we'll talk about the future. What will worship look like in the future? So we only have two, two classes after this. And then Josh is going to be leading us in Christianity Explored. Christianity Explored is sort of this evangelistic program, and uh, there are some videos involved in it, but it's essentially walking through the Gospel of Mark. And our goal is to train you to do this, so that way in your home, perhaps pairing up with another family who lives close to you, you can host something for your neighbors and acquaintances where you can lead them through the Gospel of Mark using this Christianity Explored material. So as a church, we own this material. You don't have to even pay anything to do this. You can just benefit from, from what we've bought um, as a church. And we did this in January, right before the coronavirus hit, and we were wrapping up right when that was coming in. And at that time, we met at JoJo's. JoJo's is no longer, unfortunately. But the goal for that was to train people to do it in their homes. And um, so we didn't quite make it all the way. Well, we finished, but it, it wasn't what we hoped it would be. So we're going to do that together as a Bible class here. So we'd encourage you to, to come and be a part of that. But let me pray, and we'll jump in on the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for your word that teaches us. Thank you for your spirit who guides us. Thank you for Jesus who gave us this meal of the Lord's Supper. Help us to think about it now as we look to 1 Corinthians and to be able to grow in our appreciation for this meal and to participate in it more rightly. In Christ we pray. Amen. All right. Well, uh, 1 Corinthians is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. And I'm trying to look at the Lord's Supper from Paul's letters only. But then as I was doing that, I realized that is far too big of an a, um, investigation than we could do here. And I wanted to, on this last lesson of the Lord's Supper, leave us some time for questions or discussions. So I've narrowed the focus to just 1 Corinthians and the topic primarily, mostly, to what it means to partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And then the opposite of that, what it means to partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. So this is, this is what our focus is going to be this morning. Um, you might want your Bibles, if you want to track along, 1 Corinthians 11. The whole topic of partaking in, of the table in an unworthy manner comes up in 1 Corinthians 11:27 when Paul writes that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. And then he goes on to talk about how you can avoid partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Uh, but this, what happens to you if you partake in an unworthy manner, or at least to this church at Corinth, is that there would be sickness and some would even die. And that sickness and death prefigured, it was a prefiguring of judgment. So it was like an inbreaking of judgment that would show the condemnation of the entire world and all those who sin against the body and blood of the Lord on the final day. So in the same way that we sometimes talk about Jesus's miracles being an inbreaking of the kingdom and new life and that sort of thing, 
this sickness and death was an inbreaking of judgment um, that would be reserved for the final day. Now, unfortunately, I think that Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians 11 have been misunderstood and responded to inappropriately by many Christians, uh, at least in the world that I grew up in. And I want us to avoid that as we consider them. When, when Paul gives these instructions, the way that most people respond, at least in, in my church life experience, would be like this. There would be about three to five minutes of a self-examination period right before you partook of the elements. And if for some reason there, there, there was something that, you know, wasn't quite taken care of in your life or you, you didn't quite feel very holy that day or something like that, you wouldn't partake in the Lord's Supper. And what, what that led to, I think, is people not partaking in the table when they need it the most. Um, and, and that was really challenging for me growing up. I would regularly abstain or refrain from partaking, um, not because I was refusing to repent of a particular sin or something like that. I just knew I'm sinful. Or, um, yeah, I bickered with my brother this week, and he's in junior church, and I'm not, and I haven't had a chance to talk to him about that. So maybe I should leave and talk to him and fix it, and then come back, and then I can take it, or something like that. And I think that's the way that, that many respond to these texts. And the problem with this is that there's a failure to consider what's actually meant by an unworthy manner. Um, and, and that's the, the issue that we're going to get into here. Um, so we're, let, let me say that there are two ways that I think Paul gives the church um, to recognize that you're partaking in an unworthy manner. One is corporately. So there's a way that a whole church can partake of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. And then there are ways that individuals can partake in an unworthy manner. I'm going to start with this corporately unworthy approach to the Lord's table. And we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So I'm keeping everything to 1 Corinthians. And I hope that, you know, keeps some continuity between things. But if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, the, this section of 1 Corinthians opens up with a really troubling case of sexual immorality in the church. Now, strangely, the church in Corinth is divided on just about every issue that Paul touches on, except for an issue where they're tolerating sin that wouldn't even be named among the Gentiles or it wouldn't even be tolerated among unbelievers in Paul's words. And I'm just going to read this for you. Um, chapter 5, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and this is probably a stepmother or something like that. Doesn't make it much better, but it's problematic. And you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? Even so, so the picture is that this church knows about this. Everybody's aware of this situation, and uh, they're they're like taking pride in the fact that we're the kind of church that lets this go on. 
Um, and, and I think as we look at churches in our day, we can start to draw some parallels in different situations. It might seem unthinkable for us to, to know of a congregation that would tolerate this, but as we look at the church in America, the United States especially, we can identify sin after sin that is not only tolerated, but celebrated. And I think Paul could say the same thing. You, you are arrogant in letting this sin may remain in the church. You should remove this unrepentant, willfully unrepentant individual from your congregation. So he gives them instructions in verse 3. Even though I am absent in the body, I am present in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And we, we would call this handing over of the individual um, in Paul's language to Satan, we would refer to that as corrective church discipline. And there's a lot of debate about what it means for this individual to be handed over to Satan. Um, I will just briefly suggest that it is talking about removing this individual from the realm of the church in Christ to the realm of the world in, in the realm of Satan. And the point is that this individual does not uh, reflect genuine faith and obedience. Therefore, we can no longer put our mark of approval. You know, even though this guy has been baptized, even though he's been partaking of the Lord's Supper, just as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, the Israelites were baptized in the Red Sea and they partook of a, a type of the Lord's Supper of the manna in the wilderness, yet they were destroyed. So this individual, even though he's been baptized and he's declared his faith, and even though he's partaking of the Lord's table, he should be removed from the assembly to be destroyed, just like erring, or erring, however you want to pronounce that, wo that word, um, errant Israel. You, you remove them from the assembly, and they're handed over to Satan. Now, the goal of this, though, is so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So church discipline, it's, it, the goal is restorative. It's so that this individual won't continue on in their ways and then be judged with the, the rest of the world condemned on the final day. Now this, uh, I was talking to someone, this is like a year ago, but um, at a family thing, and they, they were asking if we believed in church discipline, and I said yes, and they said, well, isn't that just counterintuitive? How does handing someone over to the world um, bring them back to the Lord? But, but I think that's the point, is by this individual remaining in the church, the church was saying, you're okay, you're, you're one of us. You're part of Christ's body. And by removing that individual from the fellowship and assembly, this individual now knows, I, I have no confidence to stand before the Lord. The Lord's people, his body is rejecting me. And so I need to repent and return to the Lord. So what the, the connection though to the Lord's Supper comes in this next section, all right? It says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. So his analogy here is that a little sin is like leaven that infects the dough, the bread, the church, right? Clean out the old leaven, that's the exercise of church discipline, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with the old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So this language of Christ being the Passover lamb and us celebrating the feast, 
The feast in mind is the Lord's Supper. That's the connection that's being brought here. And Paul's point is that when you come to the table to celebrate Christ, our Passover lamb, who instituted the Lord's Supper at Passover, you need to come in holiness, not in sin. So there, there are two ramifications of this. The first is that the Lord's Supper is really a meal for believers. It's not a meal for unbelievers. It's a meal of the new covenant community. Jesus gives us this when he says, this cup is the blood of the new covenant, right? Um, so, so we recognize that it's for believers. Now, I was talking with somebody, nobody here, um, someone last Sunday about this, and they asked, well, if you let unbelievers who are in the assembly take the Lord's Supper, aren't you like making them worse off than they were before? You know, when they were, we, we pass the elements, we don't um, have people come up, so we can't fence the table, we can't keep people from taking it. And I think the way we should look at that is just this person, an unbeliever is already standing under the condemnation of God. And if they're partaking of the table, yes, they're sinning against the body and blood of the Lord, but perhaps they will be like some of the soldiers at the cross who sinned against the body and blood and then saw and said, truly, this is the, the Messiah. So I don't think we should snatch the bread and, and the cup out of the hands of an unbeliever who visits with us, but we should be clear that this is a meal for Christ's people. Um, but then secondly, we need to be clear that this is a meal that should be approached with repentance and humility, and that goes not just for individuals, but for the whole church. I think Paul's point is you have, by boasting in this individual sin, come to the table in an unworthy manner because you're coming with the leaven of malice and evil and, and not with the unleavened bread. Remember, the body is the bread of sincerity and truth. Paul goes on, though, um, and he says, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. So this, this you know, instruction to be pure doesn't mean we don't welcome unbelievers to gather with us or we don't go out to reach them. Instead, he goes on to say, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, verbally abusive, a drunkard, or a swindler. So these are the individuals who, were, who are, I think, intended to be called to repentance very publicly. These are all really very publicly known sins as they occur. And the, a church that tolerates these things and, and that welcomes them and boasts in them is a church that is, as a whole, approaching the table in an unworthy manner. Now, when we look at that list of sins, I think this is probably an example list. It's not exhaustive. There are other things that, are, that, that we could add to this list. This is just an example of the kinds of sins that, would, th that a church tolerates that makes them approach the table in an unworthy manner. He then ends with this somewhat vague or cryptic phrase, do not even eat with such a person. Now, I, uh, for a long time, always just understood that to mean don't, you know, go grab a burger with that individual or something like that. I think more particularly in, in this context and with the reference to Christ our Passover lamb earlier and, and eating without the leaven, you know, coming as un, unleavened bread, I think that this is a reference to the Lord's Supper in particular. Now, I think it has uh, ramifications for 
beyond the Lord's Supper in that matrix of church discipline, we ask questions like, well, how do we relate to this individual? particularly if there were a family member or something like that. And um, I think there are implications for that. But I think Paul's focus here is on the Lord's Supper. Don't eat with such a person. And, and one of the reasons we can confirm that this is the Lord's Supper is that in this time, and especially at this church we know, the Lord's Supper was being celebrated at the conclusion of a meal at their weekly gathering. And so it wasn't just a thimble of juice and a, a cracker. It was a full-on meal, and then, and then you'd have a formal celebration of, of the table at the end of that meal. So when Paul says not to eat, to, with, the, eat with such a one, he's talking about that meal. Don't invite them to that meal that concludes with the Lord's Supper, because if you're doing so, you're going to come in an unworthy manner. Now, we should be clear that all of us are unworthy of coming to the table in and of ourselves. So, so this is an unworthy manner, all right? This is describing the manner in which you come. It's not describing you. We're all unworthy to come, but, there's a w- but in Christ, we're welcome to come, but we must come in a worthy manner, which is as a church, protecting the purity of the church, exercising restorative, corrective church discipline in repentance and humility. Okay, any, any comments or questions on that? on this corporate approach to the table. All right, there's one application or response that I want to note, and that's the fourth one. I've sort of folded the other three into the explanation here. Um, But Resurrection Church needs to regularly engage in corporate confession and repentance. This is something that we need to do as a church because there's of this reality of coming to the Lord's table where we can come with the, the leaven of sin. Moments of confession and repentance should happen all the time as we relate to one another, as we hold each other accountable in the Lord, as we work out our church covenant together. These, these moments of repentance should happen in daily life in our relationships with one another. But beyond that, I think there's a corporate confession and repentance and affirmation of pardon that, that should include all of us when we gather formally as an assembly. And this we try to do in our worship gatherings on Sunday mornings. Almost every week, there's either a prayer of confession or a responsive reading where, where we as a congregation speak words of confession together um, in where we affirm the pardon that we have in Christ. Well, this corporate confession that we do together is not, um, you know, just random or unnecessary. This is a necessary part of the Christian life, not just as individuals, but also as an assembly, as the one body. So um, Martin Luther, I think we're all familiar with him. He said something like um, the, the doorway to salvation is repentance and something like that. The path beyond it is repentance as well. I don't remember the quote. Maybe someone who was a Lutheran growing up would, would know that better than me. But, but all of life is repentance, really. And all of church life needs to be repentance as well. Um, but then repentance goes beyond just um, speaking words and confession and, and even action on our part, but actually affirming the pardon that we have in Jesus Christ. 
And I think the way that we structure our services is intended to communicate that and remind that um, to all of us where we start the service, where we exalt and adore and, and behold God. And in response, we see ourselves clearly and rightly. So that's where we confess our sin. And then by the end of the service, the very last thing we do and that we'll do today is we participate in the Lord's Supper. And as we take of the bread and the cup, there's an assurance of forgiveness for our sin. And this is the language that John uses in 1 John 1, 9. If we, you know, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, that's what we're picturing and participating in, in the Lord's Supper. All right, comments or questions there as we move from corporate to individual approaches to the table. Okay, well, if the church is a collective whole, can partake in the supper in in a worthy or an unworthy manner, so also does individuals, few individuals. Um, So 1 Corinthians 11, though, is where this comes into focus. So I would just um, encourage you to turn there. In, in verse 17, Paul starts to talk to the Corinthians, and he says that here, I cannot praise you um, because you're coming together not for the better, but for the worse. That's, that's a strong condemnation of a church's gathering. Uh, have you ever thought about that? A church can gather, and their gathering can actually put them worse off than they were before they got there. And I think that is true in particular of coming to the table. And Paul is uh, going to work through some things here that we can't get into totally in terms of the background, Uh, but he's condemning them because as they're gathering, you have to remember that they're gathering on a Sunday, probably um, in the evening because they don't have a weekend like we have. The wealthy elites in the church have people who work for them, so they they are able to arrive early to this gathering, and this gathering has a meal associated with it. That would be natural when you gather in the evening. Uh, But then these day laborers, these uh, poor individuals who would be, have been working all day, are then showing up to this meal after they finish their work. Um, and these wealthy individuals are probably bringing their own food, and they're probably jumping in and eating ahead of these poor individuals who come who are bringing their own food. Now, unlike our American potlucks, it, it wouldn't be bring your food to share. You just bring your own food. Um, or the, the alternative way that meals happen there is that the host would provide food for everybody. Uh, but, but these meals would turn out to be more social statements than anything else, to where the wealthy elites would get the best food and the best wine, and then the poor people who would come would get kind of the paltry, smaller, less, you know, good portions, the, the less desirable food. That is what the poor people would partake in. And this would be in keeping with the social customs of their day. Um, Meals were a social statement. They weren't just for nutrition. They weren't totally just for friendship and hanging out. They were really more to say, this is where I am on the social ladder and this is where you are. And so wealthy elites would often invite poor and and others with slaves. And those individuals would eat out in kind of an atrium larger room. And then the wealthy people would eat in the actual dining room that would seat, you know, like eight to 10 people. Now, the best guesses that we have is probably the largest house churches, max, were like 50 to 60 people. And so probably 10 out of these 60 people are the the individuals who are being spoken to in this text. 
So in uh, these wealthy elites, the small group of people are the ones who are being rebuked here because they're going ahead and eating. Um, and then listen to Paul's condemnation of these individuals in verse 20. When you come together, then it is not to eat the Lord's supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. So, so hopefully the background I've given you shows what's going on here. And it's this act of operating according to the world's value systems and emphasizing division within the church rather than unity that is being described as partaking in an unworthy manner. So once again, I want to punctuate the point that Paul's, Paul's language here in his instructions are primarily directed at a small group within the church. Now, with, throughout 1 Corinthians, over and over again, he hits small groups and talks to them individually, so much so that you can sometimes hear um, what might be interpreted as Paul contradicting himself. So at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 11, he tells women in the church, it's okay for you to pray and prophesy, but you need to do so in an appropriate way. But then to another group of women in the church in chapter 16, um, he, I think 16, um, actually 14, he's, he says, I, I do not permit you to speak. You need to be silent. Well, these things would, are contradictory if he's talking to the whole group. But what Paul's doing is he's targeting this divided church and hitting the factions within them and giving them the instructions they need for the moment. And his instructions here, when he gets to the instructions not to partake in an unworthy manner, these are true for everyone, of course, but he's targeting the wealthy elites who are participating in the table in a particular way. And that the way that they're doing it is now being shorthand referred to as an unworthy manner. So verse 27, So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Well, what is the unworthy manner? It's coming in and highlighting your social position and putting others down and emphasizing division. So what are these individuals supposed to do? Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, and this is a reference to Christ's body, the church, whoever does this, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Okay, so, so this is what partaking in an unworthy manner is. It's partaking without recognizing the body or without recognizing the true nature of the body. One in Christ, brought together in him. Paul says that the one who does this will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Now, I, I want to make the case that Paul is just emphasizing that a sin against a brother or sister is a sin against Christ himself. And now, with the elements of the Lord's Supper in view, that picture the body and the blood, he just jumps right over that and, and uses these elements as a visible picture of the one these individuals were sinning against. Now, to, to make that point, in 1 Corinthians, um, well, I've lost my place, but in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, when Paul is talking about partaking of food offered to idols, in chapter 8, verse 12, he says this, Now, when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you're sinning against Christ. Paul equates sinning against a, a fellow believer with sin against Christ. Now, here in chapter 11, he says, you who are sinning against the poor, 
you who are humiliating the church of God, you're sinning against Christ himself. So, so that's where the danger is. It's in the division that's emphasized in the Lord's Supper and seeing people through a worldly value system instead of a kingdom value system at the table. So the, the way that they were to work against this is through um, examining themselves and considering the body. Okay, this is what they were to do. They were to approach the table as one body bought by the blood of Christ a, who share in the covenantal community. Now, there are five points of response that I think are relevant for our church as we look at this. But before I hit those, any questions about my interpretation of, of what's going on there? Okay, first... We should rightly seek to repent of sin prior to coming to the table. We should do this every day. And, and particularly, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday, every Sunday is a reminder that we need Christ to forgive us and we need to reconcile with one another. Okay? So we need to examine ourselves. This is a right impulse. Um, however, Paul's, uh, Paul's instructions here are for the wealthy elites to examine themselves. For he's talking to particular individuals to um, examine themselves concerning a particular sin against the body. And while I think in principle we can say we should all examine ourselves for all sin, we should not overly um, cling to that one line that's intended for a group of people committing a particular sin in such a way that we now, as we come to the table, have an inward focus as we examine ourselves and we only think about me and Jesus as we come to the table. This examining should be carried out in such a way that the welcoming one another command in verse 33, welcome one another to the table, can be carried out as well. So if our approach to the table is to examine ourselves with this mode of individuality that fails to welcome one another to the table and only thinks about me, I think then we are in more danger of committing this sin of coming without recognizing the body than we would have been if we didn't take that time to, to look inward before we came to the table. Paul's point is you examine yourself, wealthy elite, so you can actually see others rightly now so you can look outward. So I want to warn us against coming to the Lord's Supper in such a way that we have an inward examination that transforms the table from a communal feast to an individual snack that's just about me and Jesus. Okay? So, so that's problematic. Any questions about that? Because I think this is, this is the, um, if you had the same church experience as I did, this is a hard break from that. Okay, second, I think the decision to refrain from participation in the Lord's Supper should take even more prayer and consideration than a decision to participate in the meal. So let me say that again. A decision to refrain from participating in the Lord's Supper should take even more prayer and consideration than the decision to participate in the meal. The default mode of operation should be for us as a church gathered to participate in this communal meal. When an individual refrains from participating, when they abstain from the Lord's Supper, they're essentially cutting themselves off from the community of faith and by virtue of their abstention, unable to fulfill the command to welcome one another to the table. That, that is the situation that's going on here. 
in 1 Corinthians 5, the kind of person who's not welcome to eat is the kind who is going headlong in unrepentant sin. So for you to willy-nilly decide, I don't feel like I should partake of the Lord's table today, or I just don't feel particularly holy today, what you're doing is you're cutting yourself off and you're putting yourself at the table in, in the realm of Satan instead of in the realm of the community of faith. So the decision not to participate is a decision that is really grave and important and should not happen, I don't think, without the counsel of your pastors and, and perhaps even the voice of the church. Um, you, you should at least talk with fellow members and in doing so, allow them to help you see if you are pursuing repentance or not. And, and if you are considering, particularly in an ongoing way, refraining from, from taking of the Lord's Supper, we would, we would recommend that you talk to your pastors about that. Because this, that decision not to partake in the communal meal is not a decision to be made as an individual. So by analogy, um, if, if you are having a group meal at your house, if guests are coming over and someone in your family without talking to anyone just decides, I'm not going to eat, that, that would be strange and weird and isolating. And, and that's what happens a little bit at the Lord's Supper as well. Okay, so there are certainly situations where individuals shouldn't come to the table, but I think those are rare and in the kind of things where if you're not coming to the table, then perhaps you're, you're the individual in need of corrective church discipline. And I think it's on that level that you should think of not coming to the table. Third, we need to work really hard to welcome one another to the table and to push against receiving the Lord's Supper in virtual isolation or essential indifference to one another. I think that's the default mode of taking the Lord's Supper in virtual isolation and essential indifference to one another. And that is the exact opposite of what the table is intended to do. So there are small gestures that we make towards unity as we come to the table. We, we bite, you know, eat our bread at the same time and, and throw back the thimble at the same time. But, but these are just really small gestures. But we need to then work really hard to think about other people and our commitment and covenantal identity with one another as we come to the table. So I recommend more noticeable gestures, such as when we get to the Lord's Supper, slide over and sit to the person next to you, sit shoulder to shoulder. Uh, maybe, maybe there are still enough COVID concerns that this is not appropriate, um, but the requisite three to five chairs that Minnesota has between people need not be there. When, we, when you eat at a dinner table, you sit side by side. And, and that's not just out of convenience because your table is only a certain length. It's because coming to meal together is a communal event and we sit next to each other and across from each other. And we're, we're prohibited by our rows and amphitheater style seating. I don't know what to do about it other than to say, do the thing of look at the person next to you and give them the awkward nod and, and slide on over next to them and meet in the middle and partake of the Lord's table together. And, and then don't sit in the same row every Sunday. Sit by different people each week. Don't get in your habit of this is my spot and I'm in virtual isolation from everyone else. Work to mingle and connect with other people and then accentuate that as we come to the table. Um, this, I think, would be good for all of us to do, um, even though it's awkward. But because I've told you it's maybe a little bit awkward, and we all know that, now when you slide in, it do, it's not awkward anymore. You just talk each other through it, you know, with your, your nonverbal nods as you, as you move in, okay? So we want this to be a communal meal. 
Fourth, we need to take steps forward in working through the logistics of including children's workers and others in our celebration of the Lord's Supper. Now, I recognize that it might just be impossible to get the nursery workers and the babies in for the Lord's Supper. That's one of the reasons we're moving to a weekly observance. But I've heard from ladies in particular who work in the nursery who have gone a long time without the Lord's Supper. We need to be thoughtful about that and considerate about that. Um, as we grow and have ushers and, you know, other people who perhaps are helping with parking or other things that would have them distanced, we, we need to work hard to draw it in, rein it in, come together here as much as we can. I think if we uh, start a children's church, I think we should be bringing those kids in to, to file into the back rows so the workers can partake and these individuals can see the church coming together for this family meal. Um, we're, we're not in a spot where any of those things are happening right now, but we need to be thinking about that ahead of it so that way we are working hard to unite together at the table, not to be divided. Fifth, as I have mentioned in other lessons, every meal carries echoes of the Lord's Supper. And so as we come to the table and as we're to welcome one another to the table here, so too ought we to welcome one another to our tables in our homes, to our dinner tables. And I think we should allow this Lord's Supper gathering where all come on equal footing before the Lord to propel us forward to have echoes of this in our home as we invite others over for dinners, as we commune to one another. Now, the worldly value system that we live in that emphasizes ethnic, socioeconomic, generational, and political distinctions makes sharing meals together in the home with the other an abnormality. Well, the Lord's Supper shows us that in the kingdom, we welcome the other to our dinner table and, and we commune with them and we dine with them and we grow in relationship with them. Now, I want to make a distinction here between hospitality and entertaining. Okay, and this might seem arbitrary. I don't think it is. I think we start to talk about hospitality in terms of having our best friends over for dinner and hanging out with them in the backyard. That's not hospitality. That's entertaining and that's having a good time and that's right and good and you should have people that you do that with. But genuine hospitality comes at an inconvenience to yourself and, and it comes at inviting the other. So I would suggest that as we have the Lord's Supper, that should be a reminder that you should be welcoming into your life people who don't share your affinities and interests, who don't look like you, who don't enjoy the same things as you. You should be welcoming them to, to the table. And the Lord's Supper is like the archetypal meal. It's like the big, thick way of doing this. And then there's echoes of that all week long as individuals in this church and other churches across the world invite people unlike them into their homes for a meal. That's hospitality, and that's what the Lord's Supper uh, points us towards, is we're commissioned out, is we're sent out. Any questions or comments on that? Okay, well, in our last three minutes then, I want to get into the optional section of our lesson, and that's where I want to defend my comments that the Lord, that every meal is an echo of the Lord's Supper, and that the coming together at the Lord's Supper is really a commissioning event to send us out to commune with the saints day by day. Um, so this might seem arbitrary to make a connection between the Lord's Supper and a regular meal, um, but that, that I don't think is the case. Um, Every meal is an echo of the Lord's Supper. Meals, by their very nature, provide the landscape for communion, formation of a relationship, 
and its inverse, the breaking of fellowship. So that's where you need to think gangster in the back room um, shooting his rival under the table. Well, there's a meal that's intended to bring communion and fellowship and harmony, but when there's bad faith, when it doesn't happen in good faith, the inverse is there and it feels wrong. It feels bad. That, that's why all the betrayals and breakups happen at a, at a diner, right? Um, because that's where you should be forming your relationship, not breaking it. So start seeing this in your movies and TV shows. Notice where these things happen. Um, but there, there are multiple lines of connection between the common or vulgar meal and the sacramental meal. That's the Lord's Supper. Um, in Jesus's declarations that he's the bread of life, along with his miraculous feedings, the final feeding of the Passover meal in the institution of the Lord's Supper. And then even beyond that, post-resurrection, Jesus's restoration of Peter is framed by another meal. This is the very nature of meals. But other lines can be drawn as well, particularly from 1 Corinthians 10. And I'm going to just point you to that. I, I think it's interesting to consider. But Paul points out that individuals who are gathering outside of an idol, outside of the cultic sacred space, when they participate in a meal that's attributed to a false god, they are participating with demons. And, and Paul draws a connection from there in this common meal to end of to Christians, and he says, I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to participate with demons and to be eating and drinking of the cup of the Lord. And the, the point is that the s- sacred spiritual world is not limited to a temple or to a church building or to a particular kind of food, food in a cultic ceremony in a temple, or food uh, is the gathered assembly with the Lord's Supper. But beyond that, there's this idea that wherever the food is taken, where the, a deity is attributed, its provision and gratitude is offered to it, there's a partic- participation with that deity in the meal. And I think that's true of, of our common meal as well, is we um, offer thanks to God for this food as we recognize the pictures of this food, the way that it nurtures us and sustains us in a utility sort of way, in the way that it brings us into fellowship with others, and in the way that it mitigates death, hearkening all the way back to the provision of food post sin in the garden. We attribute this to God and we commune with God in our common meal. And as we recognize that verbally with one another and point each other to these realities, we now commune together with God in a unique and special way, even in our common meals. So we're out of time to be able to look at that in detail, but that I think is at least a gesture towards some, you know, biblical support for for my comments there. So I would encourage you as we partake of the Lord's Supper today, and then as you have a meal together, look at that as a genuine echo of of the table. And as you're able this week, invite others into your home um, and not just people who you have a natural connection to. That's good. But also think about individuals who you don't have a natural connection to and, and take joy and celebrate the connection you have in Christ that transcends all natural affinities.